0: The Guardian. My name's John Dennis. As the World Cup finals reach their climax with Spain taking on Holland on Sunday, in today's podcast we'll look at how the tournament has reflected the world in
1: 2010. For
0: Africa. My guests are Guardian writer and sometime goalkeeper Simon Hattonstone, former BBC World Service editor Teresa Guerrera and Guardian football writer Barney Roney. Before we hear from our guests it's the first World Cup to have taken place in Africa. So how's the tournament affected the host country South Africa? Let's see the views of some South Africans.
1: Uh, my name is Gerald. I'm from Zimbabwe. I'm an artist I make, you know, antiques to decorate a bit in your room, living room, or even in the garden. I came here for the World Cup, you know, to alleviate uh, some of my personal problems by working with uh, the tourists. I would say we had great expectations. Some might say it's wishful thinking, but I expected for business to boom, for people to come and press more orders, but I didn't work out the way we expected. Sometimes, I hardly make a sale at all. And uh, some of these tourists, they just come and see, it's like we are in exhibition, but they just come and see they don't buy. i has been disappointing, for, personally for me. They build stadiums, uh, upgraded roads for the World Cup in order for them to accommodate the tourists. But when I take a closer look, I mean, when we take a closer look into how people are generally living in South Africa, especially black South Africans, they're living in shacks. We have no option, we have to abide by what we have, and what we have, some of these we are living in squatters. This World Cup in general uniting people, I would say that's a delicate matter, like for example this is an aphobia thing, and it's going to be imposed on the foreigners, and I'm also a foreigner here in South Africa. I just hope this uh, unity thing, which, uh, which was brought about by the World Cup, is going to continue.
2: My name's Heidi Holland. I'm a journalist and an author. I write books. Oh, do you know, it's been so wonderful because we, our expectations were quite low. I think this country suffers a bit from a sort of in, inferiority complex, and a lot of the media elsewhere, particularly in Britain, was very, very negative in the run-up to the World Cup, and I think because we've internalised this sense that we're not quite up to speed, we, we all bought that, and uh, I was quite nervous before the World Cup that crime would come with a vengeance, but in fact, I don't know where the criminals are. We haven't got any criminals, it seems. There is division. There's all kinds of division in this country. So when we talk about unity, we don't mean that everybody's suddenly having dinner together and enjoying conversations together. But the fact is the white people got behind Bafana to a greater extent than any of us expected. And unfortunately, white people, although they're... A small percentage of the population are very important here because they're the economic drivers and so on. So their attitude is quite decisive, you know. I mean, FIFA comes in for a hammering all the time, quite rightly. In many cases, they are quite bullying. And um, I think they virtually held a gun to the South African government's head and said to them at a certain point, either you pull finger now or we're going to take the cup away from you. But on the other hand, they've achieved this incredible tournament it couldn't have been done without fifa and a lot of people would like uh, the idea that all the poor people can go to the matches and so on but this is a commercial event and i I think perhaps fifa becomes synonymous with aspects of the commercial world we don't like but nevertheless it requires a huge amount of organization i think if we could get loads more tourists and i i think that in the short term at any rate seems to be on the cards I think the fans have really enjoyed South Africa. People are amenable and the restaurants are not, were not as overpriced as everybody had predicted. You know, there wasn't as much exploitation as people had feared. I think our reputation has benefited immeasurably and I think it will be reflected, certainly in the short term,
3: in economic gain. And that's what we need. We need jobs. My name is Kammocha Lodeka, born in Soweto 1982. I'm self-employed, I'm an entrepreneur. The World Cup's been very, very interesting, very surprising, very emotional, but it's been very good, man. It's been very eye-opening and you got to learn a lot. Just not about football, but about looking and learning more about different people. There hasn't been any big issues concerning the World Cup. It was well-managed, hospitality is well. Uh, The tourists that come, the ones that I've met, are very happy, so yeah, I'd say I got to actually evaluate my country just a little bit better and just see that, you know, we're going somewhere. In terms of just learning to accept and working together with the fellow man, it, it really allowed us to do that because even white South Africans, we'd be able to actually communicate a little bit better. There's not quite the stereotype of, ah, you know they're white, just let them be. There's more of an open openness about it.
4: I'm Fani de Villiers, a 54 year old Afrikaner. I'm a big rugby supporter. In rugby, you try not to show that you hurt. In soccer, they're trying to fake injury. That is a bit of a, a softy, sissy game to us here. Uh, we were a bit lukewarm towards Bafana, Bafana. We could see that they wouldn't really make it to the top. But we, we did follow the games and we, we, some of us bought Bafana, Bafana jerseys. I hate the Vuvuzela. Crude noise. It's not nice. It started as a kudu horn, and then an Afrikaner in Cape Town turned it into a plastic pipe. I don't expect many, many whites to flock to those games now. But a major development was the soccer city in Soweto uh, where mostly soccer has played. The Blue Bulls rugby team played there a few weeks ago, a test, and it was very successful. And, and they're gonna play again against the All Blacks in a few weeks' time. And, and a lot of Blue Bull fans came from Pretoria, white guys, and they really enjoyed the hospitality and the friendliness of Soweto. So that that is a step forward. And to me, it will be nice if there's a blurring of the boundaries, but it's not gonna happen overnight. Teresa Guerrero, the World Cup has highlighted an enormous amount
0: of goodwill towards South Africa, hasn't it?
5: Yes, it has indeed. I mean, I, th- I think it was really quite interesting that even those people whose livelihoods consist of knocking down all these foreign enterprises and, and actually predicting that these foreigners are just not going to get this right, actually were somehow willing it all to happen. And it did happen. And no major tragedies occurred and nobody was murdered or raped or anything. Then people actually surrendered to the whole joy of South Africa and the welcome of South Africa. And I thought that was a fantastic uh, result.
0: Barney Roney, I mean, at the very least, uh, we know a little bit more about South Africa after this World Cup, don't we?
6: I feel I should defend, oddly enough, the British media in one sense in the... People may have been a bit negative about South Africa delivering this World Cup, but the British media are absolutely negative about everything. I mean, it, w- it wasn't a, a choice to single out South Africa. I mean, wait till they get started on uh, the London Olympics; it's gonna be much worse. No,
5: that's my point exactly. Because I mean, my my personal experience was when uh, the European Championships took place in Portugal in two thousand and four. You're Portuguese, Yeah, I'm I Portuguese, say. of course. And I kept reading in the papers here that that oh, no, these Portuguese people are just not gonna get those stadiums ready. Oh no, 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 it's it's terrible. You know, it's they're just not gonna finish. I mean, they're suddenly. And what do you expect? And and yet it was a major success. And I love to sit there in front of the television and see all these pundits, well-fed, well-wined, uh, you know, very welcome, enjoying the sunshine. And, and I know exactly how South Africans feel right now. I know exactly how they feel.
0: Simon Hattinson, as, as a well-fed fed and well-wined uh, Guardian journalist, how, how, do that, how do you think that... Uh, You know, South Africans will benefit from this in the long term.
7: I'm not sure that there will be a huge financial benefit. I think in terms of what it represents, it's massive. And I think as a symbolic thing, it's wonderful. Is it 16 years post-apartheid to hold a World Cup, for Africa to host its World Cup? Fantastic. If you're looking for the World Cup to rebuild the economy, as most of the people said who were being interviewed, it won't do but I don't think that was ever the priority.
0: And uh, as as the um, World Cup, as an an African phenomenon, Barney, I mean, most African players don't play
6: in their own leagues, do they? I mean, that's likely to continue, I suppose, isn't it? The World Cup won't change that, just like the World Cup won't change most of the things. I mean, just oddly enough, in defence of of FIFA, um, I'm not sure it's football's duty to fix social problems in the countries where it stages its tournaments. FIFA's been actually pretty good to African football. I mean, giving the World Cup to South Africa is just one part of it. Um, the current president, Seth Blatter, has, has used Africa to kind of bolster his own personal voting bloc. And part of that has been a particular kind of sympathy towards African football and Africa being brought into the fold. So I don't think FIFA's got a great bill to pay there, particularly.
0: Teresa Guerrero, you, you've said uh, in the past that FIFA has displayed a colonial attitude. Why do you think that?
5: In order to persuade most South Africans, and most South Africans are uh, black people and they're poor in order to get all these people behind the fact that vast amounts of money were going to go into building stadiums and not into bringing electricity to their townships, you had to promise them the earth. And they could say, oh, all these rich tourists. And, you know, black Africans see white people from Europe and they think you're very rich. Because as one of them said to me once, you come from very, 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 many thousands of kilometers away. You're here. You're staying in a hotel. You are very rich. I want some of it. These people were then promised a huge impact in their lives. But in fact, FIFA, because of commercial contracts, barred these poor people, as the Zimbabwean men said, from selling their wares anywhere where people would be tempted to buy. And the other thing that people weren't told is that these football fans come on very expensive packages. And so their spending money is very limited. So they're not about to buy uh, Zimbabwe sculptures or trinkets or even fufuzelas, which they will have purchased in advance at Sainsbury's or something. You know, so all these people were conned by, by FIFA, in a way, with the collusion of their own government into saying that immediate positive impact would happen to their lives. And it didn't, in fact. They weren't even allowed to sell their wares. So what did they
6: give up in return for that? I mean, they were told they would earn some more money because people come and buy their wares. What have they sacrificed? in being sold that promise. I mean, FIFA does that to everyone. You're not allowed to use um, a Visa card, you've got to use a Mastercard. You know, it's a commercial organization. It doesn't matter how rich you are, they won't let you sell your unofficial wares in their tournament.
5: Yes, but uh, you see, you've got to see, the difference is this, is that for you, whether you wear a Visa card or a Mastercard is a matter of minor importance. For a man who lives in a township in South Africa and whose livelihood depends on being able to actually sell so many pieces of whatever it is, cigarettes or or chewing gum or sculptures, to tourists and you say, actually, you're going to multiply this by 10 because all these rich people are going to come. What you lose is it's hope. It is the ability to improve your life immediately, which is what you were promised. Uh, Are we
6: saying that FIFA and football have caused this problem?
5: No, I am saying... this is a
6: problem in South Africa which they may have unreasonably expected football to solve. No,
5: I'm not saying that they caused it. I am saying that their rules and their commercial interests barred these people from making an instant profit, which would actually improve their lives in a way that they were maybe entitled to expect.
0: But nevertheless, I mean, football does have the capacity to sort of undermine... I mean, capitalism is the predominant economic system in the world. But, I mean, Simon, do you think that the wealthiest, best-paid players in the world have been necessarily the ones that have performed the best on the pitch?
7: Not at all. I mean, if you go back and look at the Nike advert that came out just before the (laughs) World Cup, it was Drogba who kind of almost didn't play. Torres, there was Messi, Ronaldo Ronaldo and Kaká. And, oh, Rooney, of course, and between them, they scored about one goal, didn't they? (laughs) Um, To me, that is a triumph for football, Sodnike. What they wanted to reduce football to was five, you know, individuals. And I think what the World Cup has proven is that the teams that do well are the teams that don't play as individuals, they play as teams. And even when they have fantastic individuals like Messi, even though he wasn't at his best... They play as a team. I mean, for example, Barcelona has Messi at its center. He scored 40 goals, but they play beautifully as a team, whereas Nike, they just want it as iconic individuals. It's another marketing board.
6: It's true. There is an interesting historical divergence at a time when commerce demands stars and superheroes and single faces who are going to sell this whole thing. Sport is heading into being a collective thing. Football is a collective thing. You don't have big stars like that. It's all about superb fitness and team play and this kind of collective hustle. And there's this sort of strange divergence where they're trying to sell something that basically doesn't exist. You don't have single people. That That's not the nature and of the game. Simon
0: now. mentioned Barcelona. I mean, they're sort of collectively owned
6: club. Yeah, and they're in terrible financial trouble at the moment as well. It's really bizarre. They've been held up as a model, particularly by UEFA, of how to run a football club. And it turns out they're going sort of cap in hand to the banks looking for a loan. Having been the stick with which uh, UEFA has beaten the Premier League over its financial mismanagement, it turns out they're in the same boat as Portsmouth, which is obviously quite funny.
7: Can't we pretend they're still a model?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well what, what is it about the football culture in Spain and the Netherlands uh, that's helped propel their national teams to the World Cup final? I put that question to the Guardian's chief football writer Kevin McCarra who's in Sun City
8: I think one of mind is this is a Holland's third World Cup final. I know they lost the other two but for a nation of 16 million to be in three World Cup finals is like amazing and um, to me it reflects, reflects the whole culture. I mean I can kind of learn through my wife that um, some of the leading academics in management consultancy are Dutch and that, that kind of makes sense to me. They do have a, a feeling that they know how to run things and organize things and um, they've got that, that lovely belief in themselves and uh, boring and arrogance at times. In terms of Spain this is their first World Cup final, which is uh, considering the sort of renown of their players, that uh, does take you aback. But again, it's it's a society that prizes uh, talent and touch and maintaining possession, and some of those things that would bore of silly during a winter in the Premier League.
0: I mean, both teams have managed to sort of travel well, haven't they? You know, take ex- export these styles abroad and take on the teams from around the world.
8: Yes, I mean, the, the interesting thing in Spain is that, today you know, night... Ten of their players are from Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's remarkable, but you're right. They, they have been abroad before. In case of people like Xabi Alonso, of course, and um, you know various players. And Torres is on the bench. But he's a Liverpool player, so they've got a mixture. They're now based together in La Liga, but they've seen the world, and they're a good age. The only thing I would say about Spain is they seem to have this habit of winning one 0 and you know they keep they keep the ball off you, and then they score, and you don't. I think that's quite precarious and um, they they could get into trouble. I think that uh, the Germany team was quite young and naive in the semi-final, Holland or not, and I think uh, there'll be a more abrasive uh, game in which the Dutch try and disrupt the Spanish method.
0: Simon Hattonstone, what do you think the football that we've seen during the World Cup uh, tells us about national identities and the way that that's reflected in the way their national teams play football?
7: Can I just say, Kev, if you're listening to this, can you bring me a Vuvuzela back? <laughs> um, will you get it from like a shantytown? and from a bloke, that's nothing to do with FIFA. Um, <laughs> I've got mine ordered. Have you? Yeah, South South that, that's what I want. Yes. So, national identity. Well, I'll say what it says about the English national identity, that there basically isn't one. I mean, England are like the, you you know, I wrote this piece saying um, football is essentially socialist at its heart. It's the working person's game. The great managers have had a working class socialist ideal of solidarity, et cetera, et cetera. And lots of people have ripped the argument apart and said that's absolute rubbish. You know, capitalism is rife, et cetera. But I think what is perhaps more um, worthwhile looking at is looking at how unfettered capitalism has ripped apart the game and look at that through the England team. What it's taught us about our national identity is that we had a team of individuals who could only measure themselves really, by how much they were being paid. I'm a Manchester City fan. I think the classic example will be my team next year, which are basically a bunch of mercenaries coming together in an attempt to unite. And yet again, they will finish fifth. And I think the England team were an example of that. And the teams that have done well, I would say, played with a degree of solidarity.
5: I, th- I think two things uh, need to be said on that. One is that both Holland and Spain and uh, Chile, whose, whose uh, sportsmanship I found absolutely admirable throughout, but these countries are countries have absolutely no qualms about being patriotic, being Spanish, being Dutch, being Chilean. They're proud of it. Even in Spain, with a horrible history of, of fascism and dictatorship, the flag is not something you're ashamed of. It's the flag of your country. It doesn't have to be Franco's flag. So in this country, there's a in Britain, in, in England, there's a huge ambiguity about being patriotic. People think if they're being patriotic, they're being fascist or being National Front or being something you mustn't be, you know, and then these flags come out and then everybody sort of frowns a little bit. So there's that problem. But the second thing that we must not disregard is that in Spain and in Holland, there is a huge setup, up a system of developing young players from the age of five all the way to whenever they become professionals. And that system is now, has been in place in Spain for a long time and yeah. is now finally paying results. So the combination of being proud of representing your country, having all this training behind you, and finally having acquired in Euro 2008 self-belief yeah. has brought, you know, as now bringing complete results
7: I do think even if we developed, as we should develop, I mean, such is the pure capitalism of the premiership that it's not worth it because we need instant success. So we I can agree, develop yes. and develop and then we won't pick the players. I agree. Or you'll be like Manchester City, you'll develop 4 homegrown players and then you'll sod them off to Sunderland. You know, I place. think you're,
6: you're sort of missing the point about the Premier League. We've basically got a choice here. What we've got is the Premier League is a service economy league. We stage manage the best league in the world. We're very good in this country putting things on. It's not a, a manufacturing economy. We don't produce players. What we do is produce the best most exciting best publicized best branded league in the world and that's what we're good at and we've done a very good job at it and it's very easy to discount that and say that's not an achievement but it is but it would be extremely hard to do both that and also match well the kind of footballing equivalent of china for producing players as well as as having this kind of service economy which is what we do have
7: i agree it's a it's a huge achievement but i think the cost is greater than the achievement What's the cost? I think we've got bankrupt football teams. I think it'll be decades till we get a decent England team again. Most of the best teams have, I think the figure today was under 40% of English players. And but that's what i we're, we're totally... staging
6: a league here for other people. We, 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 yeah, like, we are. Like, but like I you asking them to bring back a Vuvuzela. We, 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 you know, yeah. That's what we do, that's our no, instinct. That's,
7: that's great, but I think it's at a huge cost to our national game.
6: Well, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. about there's two ways of reducing footballers. You either have mass poverty or you have a brilliant system like Holland do, where you say, OK, we're a very small nation. We're going to make the most of what we've got. And that they actually produce things. And maybe it's impossible not to see a kind of wider resonance in the way the Dutch approach life. I mean, half of their country is reclaimed from the sea. (laughs) Um, But we don't have the poverty. We don't have the system. What we have is a kind of ability to manage things and to brand them. And we're making the most of that. Uh, Teresa, I mean, uh, talking about the final now, Paul, the psychic octopus has
0: uh, predicted that Spain will win uh, the final. Um, Can I have a prediction from you?
5: No, because I tell you what, I've I've been predicting almost everything right up till now. I've, I've been I've been competing with this octopus. I really have.
0: <laughs> We're all competing.
5: Um, but that means that also my heart has then been set on something, and I suffered so much <laughs> during that Spain Germany semi final. I'm not going to put myself through that again. I'm just hoping this is my. You know, you fall in love with football when you see uh, the Dutch in the seventies playing. You then fall really deeply. Truly in love with it. And all you want all your, wife, all your life is just to recover <laughs> <laughs> that feeling, you know, that, that exhilaration. And so I'm just hoping to be able to sit there. I know it's not going to happen. I know it's going to be a tough match. But I, I'm, y- you sit there all the time waiting, expecting this happiness to descend upon you for 90 minutes. So this is what I want. I, I don't particularly care who wins, provided they make me happy. <laughs>
6: Barney, one from you. Spain 2-0.
7: <laughs> Simon I would love Holland to win but not as much as I'd love Spain to win mainly because I've got them in the office drawer
0: <laughs> well thank you Simon Hattonstone Barney Rone and Teresa Guerrera it's Guardian Daily today was today. produced by Tim Mayby and Peter Sale my name's John Dennis thanks for listening
6: reports from around the world.